months ago, whenever it was. <coughs> How long? Five years. Oh, I was way wrong. Um, and this reading is by way of a, a bit of a rewind, a reminder uh, of just the commencement of Paul's letter to the Romans. And I start with his greeting in verse 7 and then from verses 8 to 17. So if you've got some way of following, be it printed word uh, or electronic word or whatever, please follow along with me. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I may harvest, have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated to both Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Thank you, Tony. Sometimes I think we do a lot better, perhaps, just to sit and listen to God's Word being read. Maybe we should continue getting a whole lot of readers up and just read right through the first eight chapters of Romans. But I don't know uh, whether you're someone who thinks this way. Uh, I do, I must confess, I think this way reasonably regularly, probably way too often than I ought to, but um, have you ever given much thought to what you would do if you were, were, were marooned on an island, a deserted island somewhere? You know, like you get that opportunity. Uh, for some people that would be uh, literally hell on earth. Um, for others that would be literally heaven on earth. Um, but if you were forced to be marooned on a deserted island, but you were given one choice, that you could just take one book with you to entertain yourself and to pass time, what would that book be? Now, I've thought through a number of answers. I guess the most obvious would be having a survival book, you know, a book that teaches you all the skills, the bare grill skills and so on, and maybe has a chapter on courage and uh, that sort of thing and um, uh, tenacity and so on. 
Or, or maybe you're a clever person, you would get the, the biggest, thickest book imaginable with the most amount of paper as possible so that you can at least have a chance of getting a fire started uh, to begin with. But uh, whenever I think about this scenario, I must confess, I think about the book of Romans. The epistle to the Romans written by the Apostle Paul. Because this book is just outstanding. And uh, you will be surprised for those who go, oh, well, haven't we done Romans and, and so on? Well, of course we've done Romans. Um, but we, we continue to listen to Romans. But yeah, it was 2014 was the last time we went through Romans together. But it's a spectacular piece of literature. In fact, Christian scholars and secular scholars alike um, both confess that it's the most profound historical and philosophical writings uh, up there amongst all of those that have ever been written. Paul wrote it around the mid-50s, within two decades of Jesus uh, being here on earth, of having died and eyewitnessed to being resurrected and ascending back to heaven at God's right hand. And he wrote it while he was in the city of Corinth. You can still visit Corinth. Hands up if you've been to Corinth. Has anyone had the opportunity? I know a couple of us have, a number of us, yeah. Uh, it's a modern city still in um, about the, uh, the central south of Greece. And Paul wrote from this Corinth, or wrote from Corinth, in order to do something. He wanted to try and mobilise the Christians back in Rome, the centre of the Roman Empire, to support his plans for a mission trip to Spain. We've been doing it ever since, haven't we, as we enter May Mission Month. That's the sort of thing we do. We continually ask God's people to be generous, to support plans for a mission trip or for cross-cultural ministry, however you want to call it. And that's why Paul is basically writing this letter. He's writing from Corinth. He's not in Rome. He's in Corinth. And he's writing to the Christian Romans to say, I'm, I'm intending to go to Spain. And on my way through, I'm going to call in, visit you. And I'm just preparing you to say, I'm looking forward to your generous gift that I can take uh, to Spain or that I can uh, continue to live by and do gospel ministry. This is what he says in chapter 15, right at the end of the book. Verse 24, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. The interesting thing is, um, as history would have it, Paul never actually ended up getting to Rome as he had intended. He never got to meet these Christians. Instead, uh, he wrote to them this beautiful masterpiece of a letter, all about God's grace and God's truth. He wrote it to the Christians in Rome and by God's spirit, he's written this for us here today in the Manning Valley. And this letter has changed countless lives in those two millennia in between. Uh, literally billions of people uh, over the past 2,000 years who have lived. Uh, God has used this, this message as, as well as many others, but this letter in particular, the theology about God that comes from the letter uh, to the Romans, God has used it to reveal himself. And uh, as, uh, that's our hope each time we come to this book, is that that would happen again and that God would see fit to continue to do that. Perhaps for you this morning, it might be the first time that you engage with this letter uh, thoughtfully. Maybe it's the 15th time and, you know, each time I come to it, uh, I learn something new again and uh, it's, a, it's just a beautiful, enriching letter. Well, never forget something about it, however, Sometimes it can be a daunting and scary letter because we think it's full of theology and really difficult doctrine and so on. But it's, it is not just that, it is certainly that, but it's more than that. And Paul states a specific purpose that he wrote this letter for, uh, and it was to bring about faith in Jesus Christ and obedience that comes from it. That's the purpose for writing. He wants people 
to understand who Jesus is and to trust Jesus, to have faith in Jesus. And it's not just have faith in Jesus, I've ticked that box, I've put my hand up at a convention, I've come to faith in Jesus, but to continue living a life of obedience in response to that faith. And he says in uh, earlier on in chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, that this purpose was specifically for this to happen among the nations. So this is, this is again, God's message just going out to all the nations. Romans is all about the nations of the earth, people groups who don't yet believe in Jesus, those who need to be reached and saved by the good news, the gospel about him. It's a message that is as relevant and as needed today in our society as, as it's ever been. It's certainly worth taking with you on a deserted island, sure, but it's even better to be read and proclaimed and preached as God's grace and truth because that's what it reveals to all those who are willing to listen. So this morning we're going to take a, a brisk walk. We're not doing the whole book. Uh, we're doing the first eight chapters. Uh, they're very profound and significant. We're going to summarise them. It'll be more like a sprint, actually. Uh, and uh, we're going to be hearing the story so far, and then we're going to slow it down in the next few weeks. And we're going to just look at the last four chapters, chapters 12 through 16. That's, that's all about what it means for us as God's people, how we live in response to God's grace and truth. So first of all, right up, Paul boldly declares his faith in chapter 1. He lays it all on the line, that he trusts the Lord Jesus, the crucified carpenter, the one who was declared to be the promised Messiah of God, who would come to save his people from their sins. Have a look at it, verses 1 to 4. This letter is from Paul. I'm reading from the New, uh, the New Living Translation. It helps us in a really heavy theological book, going through eight chapters. Uh, it helps us to get a, a clearer and quicker sense of the meaning. So it may be a little bit different to the NIV. Uh, this letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's a great quote from uh, Pastor John Piper who says this, we're not dealing here with a human opinion. We're not dealing here with a human philosophy or a self-improvement program or a tribal religion or something parochial and limited. We're dealing here with the universal news that the one and only God has acted uniquely in history to save people by sending his one and only son to die for sinners and rise again. And to reject this news, well, it means to perish. Well, Paul continues to give us an explanation of the point to writing Romans. The purpose for the whole letter comes out in these next two verses, and uh, some of these along the way are worth writing down and memorising if you want to summarise the message of Romans. Chapter 1 verses 16 to 17 for I'm not ashamed of this good news about Jesus Christ it is the power of God at work it saves everyone who believes the Jew first and also the Gentile this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight this is accomplished from start to finish by faith just as the scriptures say from Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4 you may remember this it is through faith that a righteous person has life this gospel is the very power of God, you see. People say, I want to see God's power. God, show me your power. It's the gospel message. This is the power of God. 
And what does it do? Well, it saves people, which implies what? It implies without the gospel, without God's power, we are not saved. People are lost. And they actually, as we continue to read, stand condemned without it. See, not only is it the power of God for salvation, but it's another thing. It's also God's righteousness. Uh, Not the righteousness that comes from the things we do, all the good things and the nice platitudes and the kindness we have to one another and, and so on. But this is a righteousness that comes from God, not from us. It comes from God and it's given to us as we believe and trust in Jesus. So if you forget everything about these first eight chapters, remember these two verses. I'm going to say that about five times, I think, this morning. But anyway, uh, just remember these couple of verses because the rest of the letter is applying the wonder and power and mystery of what this means, of all that God has done. And it also answers some questions along the way, which we'll get to. Okay, so there's the good news. There's the good news that God has saved people from their sins and he's revealed this righteousness to all people. But why? Why has God done that? He certainly didn't need to. Why has God done that? Well, the rest of chapter 1 goes on to say that the entire world is actually in desperate need of salvation. We're in this natural state of rebellion against God. We don't naturally incline ourselves towards God. We don't naturally worship Him. We're always trying to worship something else, things that He's made or things that we've made, which is still things that He's made because He made us, right? Um, we, we, We go for all these inferior things. And so that's actually rebellion, to, to think that we're God and that we should worship the things that we make or the things that God did make instead of the God who made them uh, is, is a form of rebellion. And God reveals himself plainly. He's made himself known, uh, it continues in chapter 1, uh, through creation. We see a sunset, a magnificent space landing or the cosmos. We see a, a beautiful flower, some new fish under the water. And it points us to God. It's like him calling, saying, this world you're in is way bigger than you. I've made this. This was created. And I need worshipping. I deserve worship. And it says that God chooses, God has chosen to reveal himself plainly in this way, and yet we choose to not worship him. We choose, in fact, to ignore him. Have a look at verse 20 of chapter 1. Forever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and they've seen the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature. And why has this been why has this been? allowed to happen so they have no excuse for not knowing God you see Romans 1 sets up this glaringly obvious truth that we see all around us still today that people have been created to worship God the one who created them but instead they worship everything and anything else other than the one true created God so what about all the good people in the world you might be thinking you know, Romans chapter 1 goes on and describes the obviously bad people. And we go, oh, well, I'm not like that. Uh, I'm not that bad. What about the good people? What about the people who go, okay, yep, I look at creation and I go, wow, there must be a God behind all of this. Wonderful. What a beautiful world. What a beautiful God. I'll go on being beautiful and lovely and love everyone and love is love and I'm, I'm just going to be a good, nice person. Well, the answer leads us into chapter 2 where we discover that any of us who might think of ourselves as good and right... Any of us who who might even acknowledge God, we are in fact no different to those people who ignore God and who don't worship him. Because while we might be quick to judge the obvious sins and rebellion of others that we see and the failures and shortcomings, we too are still just as guilty of sin and rebellion against God, towards God, even though we think we're good. In fact, that itself is part of the problem. 
thinking that we're good, thinking that we're okay. And chapter 2 tells us that God and only God has the right to pass judgment on everyone, both the bad people and the good people and everyone in between, which of course at this point in the letter, you know, is absolutely shocking news. It ought to be. It's shocking news. It, it, it arrests us. It actually gets some people really angry. Uh, I've, I've, often when we've preached through Romans um, or we raise or try and discuss it, you get people get very sort of irate about it. It evokes a, a sense of challenge, doesn't it? In our very core being of, of who we are. What do you mean I've been doing good things? I'm a good person. I'm not like that person. How can God put us all in the one box? How can God just say that we're all just as bad and just as guilty uh, as the others? It doesn't sound very fair. And yet Paul says this about even his own closest religious family, his people, the Israelites. And he actually points out to them that all along uh, there's this detailed explanation and defence of why this is so offensive and outrageous uh, as a statement. Basically he says that just knowing God's law as his people did, just knowing the right way to live, just knowing how to be good and trying to live a good life does not make you free from its obligations. Having the law as God's people, the Israelites, or being receivers of God's law in no way makes them any less under the judgment of God than even lawless pagan Gentiles. That's really offensive, isn't it? Certainly to a Jewish person and certainly to anyone else who thinks they're good for other religious reasons. Let me read to you from uh, verses 9 to 11 of chapter 2. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honour and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. He's writing, of course, to do good in response to the gospel. These are tough words from Paul because he's saying very clearly that living by God's rules and regulations is not enough. It only brings about judgment, it only brings about condemnation, it brings about an awareness of how short and how low and how much we have failed precisely because if we're honest and if God's people were honest not even the best of them were able to keep all of the law all of the time and so a true Jew says Paul is one that has experienced uh, this mark of belonging so they were given the law they were also circumcised uh, and this was um, a, a physical outward circumcision but um, they must get an internal circumcision metaphorical circumcision a circumcision of the heart by God's spirit in verse 29 and so now at this point Gentiles uh, that is pagans non-Jews they're reading this and they're thinking um okay sure I get that I think I think you're writing to you know certain subgroup of people you're not really writing to us um I think I get it but a faithful committed Jew is thinking something differently they're thinking something quite different They're they're thinking what are you doing God what are you doing You've gone and given us the law, you've, you've, you've had us circumcised uh, and making this special uh, demarcation between us and everyone else. Um, we're special people, you've called us as your own and now basically it sounds like Paul's saying that God says it was of no use of it at all. It matters nothing. If you were an Israelite, isn't that exactly how you would feel? Think about it, you're, you stand in, in um, generations, centuries and centuries of generations as being God's special people called. Um, most um, Israelites still think that today and, 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 it, and it's true. They have been called over many, many centuries as God's people. But when they come to Romans, when you come to what Paul writes 
about God and what's happened since Christ, they're left thinking, well, what was the point of all that? Why give us the law? Why give us a physical mark to set us apart if in the end it counts for nothing? And so we move into chapter 3 and it concludes with the most tragic of news. So that everyone has sinned, it says that everyone has sinned and no one can boast and everyone, religious and otherwise, will be silenced on the day of judgment. We're left pretty bleak at the end of chapter 3. Humankind is basically doomed, no matter what nationality you might be, whether you're one of God's special Jewish people or whether you're a ratbag, pagan, non-Jewish person, good people or bad people. But God has found this amazing way, the only way, for us to be made right with him. And it's a way that doesn't rely on anything we've got to do, doesn't rely on our goodness or on law-keeping or on religious devotion towards him. It's entirely separate to all of that. Have a look at Romans 3, verses 23 to 24. It says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight, and he did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. Now, when you think about it, we often say it's the most remarkable exchange, and I hope you understand this, this most remarkable exchange. Um, Jesus takes on uh, the, the full and justified and, and righteous wrath of God towards sin and rebellion. I mean, think about it. If you are the only creator and you've made the world a certain way and you love people and you've created them in your image and they just start running the world themselves, they've ignored you, they do it from birth, it's like, you know, hello... Um, he was justified and right in, in being angry towards that, wrathful. But rather than pour it out on us, he poured it out on his own son. And of course, the mystery in the scriptures is, is that was actually God absorbing his own wrath in and of himself. It's the most remarkable exchange. Jesus' life for our lives, the righteous for the unrighteous, the innocent for the holy, uh, the, sorry, the innocent and the holy for the guilty and the impure. And by God doing this for each of us within himself, he's able to justify all people who are sinners, which means that you and I stand justified. Okay? We don't have to justify ourselves in God's sight. We don't have to try and convince him that we're good or that we're worthy. We've already been justified in Jesus Christ because of what God has done. And chapter 3 goes on and raises this other little question where it says, well, hang on, how is God fair in doing that? That doesn't seem fair. How, how, how is God fair in doing that? How is God justified in doing that? Well, it goes on to say, uh, by doing it in himself, He's paid the price himself and it's been his decision, his act of grace and therefore he is justified in doing that. It's an amazing act of sacrifice. Well, you may be pleased to know that right now we're about halfway through uh, these four chapters, but the eight chapters, the next four uh, race along a little bit quicker. And at this point, there's still a problem. There's still a problem, especially if you're a Jewish person. And even if, if still for some of us, if perhaps we've just become a religious person or we've become proud of our religion um, and our good lives and what we've achieved and so on. You see, we still think that keeping the law or pleasing God by doing the right thing surely ought to count for something. And so Paul, being a devout Israelite himself, goes on to demonstrate from the Old Testament scriptures, their holy scriptures, that all along, even the law has been about faith rather than about legalistically keeping it to the letter. And he uses... Abraham, a great hero of the Old Testament Jewish faith. And taking Abraham as this example, uh, the father of God's people, uh, who they loved, Father Abraham, well, he was a hero. 
and, and, and he still is a hero. He's mentioned in, in Hebrews chapter 11. And, and the covenant of circumcision that God made with Israel actually happened well after the first promise God made when he first called Abraham. And what was that first promise that he, he gave to Abraham? It was salvation that would come through faith. And more than that, it would be a salvation that would include not just Abraham or his people, but all nations. So starting with Abraham and his family, and as they grew into the nation of Israel, God's people were all right from the start, called into a faith relationship, a trusting relationship, and they were meant to be examples. They were meant to be conduits of God's work through the world. So chapter 4 is pointing out that, in fact, we Gentiles were actually always very much part of God's plan, even back when he made that first promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Which means there's no room for boasting. No one can boast. Not those who were God's special people and not us who have been grafted in. No one can boast in anything they've done. It's all about God from start to finish. You see, the whole world is blessed through Abraham because he chose to believe God. God called him out. He'd never met this God. God called him out. He packed up his stuff and he went to where God told him. He, didn't even, he wasn't even told where he was going. He was just told to go. And he stood, stepped out in faith. He chose to believe God rather than his circumstances. And because of this, God's righteousness was credited to him. Romans 4, chapter, uh, Romans 4 verses 20 to 24. Um, up there, Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. He was absolutely convinced that God was able to do anything he promised. And because of Abraham's faith, God declared him to be righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too. This is Paul writing uh, to first century Jews. And of course, it means a lot to us still today. Assuring us, all of us, that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him. The one who raised Jesus, our Lord from the dead well at this point if you're a um, and there's nothing wrong with questioning and doubting and wanting certainty that's how we've been created we're sort of we're intriguing sort of people aren't we we get we like intrigue you may have a few questions and there are a few questions that are yet to be answered because there are still things it sounds good God's done all this stuff for us but there are still things lingering that cause us to go well, hang on how good is this news how permanent is it really and the three questions are this, what about death, because we still die, even though Jesus rose from the dead, death still happens. What about sin, because we still sin and we're tempted by sin. And what about the law? Surely I can do good stuff. Well, just quickly, those next three chapters deal with each of those questions. First of all, what about death? Chapter 5 talks about the achievements of two Adams. The first Adam, our human ancestor, the one who got us into the trouble we're all in, who sinned together with his wife Eve. Uh, and the second Adam which is Jesus Christ, the perfect human who never sinned. And what did the first Adam achieve for us? Well, nothing but death. Condemnation and death, the consequences of his and our rebellion. And what did the second Adam achieve for us? Well, life, life everlasting, the consequence of his powerful resurrection. Verse 21 of chapter 5, So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Christ our Lord. So we press on in confident hope, 
And we're not disappointed when we see death and, and eventually experience it ourselves because we have God's love in our heart, the Holy Spirit living in us and he's promised that we are in Christ and that we will, beyond our death, you need to die first to rise, right? Um, we will share also as we share in Christ's death, we will also share in his resurrection and death is not the end. I don't know about you, but I think about this every time uh, we gather together at a funeral or a memorial service of a loved one or a close friend or someone that we knew and we want to go along and support. So if you've ever had that question come into your mind, yeah, but what about death? Well, how does this work? How can we be so happy all the time and there's still death around us? Why do we still experience it even though we know the good news of Jesus, even though we've been saved? Well, remember, go to chapter 5 of Romans. We most certainly will shed tears, we'll feel the pain, we'll feel a sense of loss and sometimes it's unspeakable grief. But for those of us in Christ Jesus, this very real hope is that death we know no longer has ultimate victory. That's the first threat. Well, the second threat is this. What about sin? What about the fact that we still see, see sin as a sinful world, as people hurting each other and damaging each other? We're hurting people unwittingly. We're being hurt by people. We're tempted with things. The temptations all abound, are all around. Well, chapter 6, Paul goes on to answer that. You see, if God's law only serves to highlight our failure and to live up to it, and God's grace has overcome and destroyed sin, this is the thought, right? Maybe, some people think this, to get more of God's grace, it's okay to keep on sinning. So we try and, we try and outgrace God by sinning more so he has more to forgive. This is how some people think, this is how warped we are as people, um, all of us. In other words, maybe the more I sin, the greater God's grace towards me, and then I get to be forgiven anyway. So the question is, do I keep on sinning? And Paul has no bar of it. He says, absolutely not, of course not, no way. In Romans 6, verse 2. Instead, we should live lives according to our new natures in Jesus. Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus was without sin. Our new lives, our new natures are in him. That's now how we can and should live. Which means we're dead to sin. This is how you think about yourself. We're dead to sin, we're alive in Christ, we're freed from sin. It doesn't have power over us because our sinful nature has been put to death with Jesus. And do you know the public symbol of that is our baptism, where, where, where we are literally identifying with the death of Jesus, having our sinful natures put to death and being raised to new life in Christ. That's the symbol uh, in various ways that God's people have practised. We've now, through Jesus, received the gift of God which is life everlasting so you're not a slave to sin don't kid yourself and it's not something you can just forget about and embrace because God's always going to forgive you and uh and that's great because I get more of God's grace and that is an increasing way of living it's increasing that that mindset even amongst God's people which is tragic well what about the third question what about the law this is uh, this isn't about trying to keep the law this is about people going well maybe now that Christ has forgiven me that I've got the power of the Holy Spirit living in me. Now I can go back to the law and I can, I can attain it. I can live up to this law because God's power is now in me. You know, people that love laws and boundaries and rules and things. Well, that's the question being asked here and answered in chapter 7. And, and Paul talks about this. What was the point of having to keep it if, if, if it means nothing? So surely now with God's help, I can achieve it. Well, this is what Paul says about it. Uh, I think, in, in his life, even as a Christian. Verses 21 to 24 of chapter 7, he says, I've discovered this principle of life, that when I, do, when, I, 
want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. What a wretched, miserable person am I? Who can save me? Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? You see, the struggle with sin is real. The temptations are real. But the law is not the solution. Keeping the law only points out our failures. And of course, this wonderful declaration from Paul, who's going to free us from this dominated life, of, a life dominated by death and sin and law-keeping and rules? Chapter 8. Now, if someone said to me, right, we're going to go on a marooned island and here's um, a book and I go, I'm going to go with Romans. If they said, no, you can't have the whole book because we think you might start a fire with it, you can get one chapter. Well, this would be the chapter I'd take. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, there is now no con condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Church, if you haven't already, print it out, write it out by hand, do some creative art with it, with your kids, uh, put it on your bedroom wall, put it on the back of the toilet door, wherever it is you spend a little bit of time uh, on your own, uh, maybe on the fridge, maybe on the inside of the fridge, um, wherever you might read it, and meditate on this. Seriously, memorise these two verses because they are so liberating. You can say them to yourself. And you can declare them each and every time. Remind yourself. Death, sin and that slavish obligation to the law is finished. They're gone. They've been replaced by this new life. Life in the spirit. And that's what chapter 8 is all about. We, we now no longer need to live by law, but by the spirit. And by doing so, peace. The peace of God rules in our hearts. Well, do you know what else he does? You know what else the Spirit does, the one who lives in us? He gives us this great hope to endure suffering in this life. One thing that is so often attributed to the Spirit of God is that having him live in you is going to fix all your problems, and that it's going to bring to you a life of prosperity and wealth and things are going to be carefree and if you just keep trusting God because he's living in you, he wants only good things for you. Well, that's kind of a distortion. In fact, it's a massive distortion of what the Bible teaches and of what God has ever said about the Christian life. In fact, it's often the complete opposite. And many of us here, I know this, I know you know this and you've experienced it. The Spirit's role in chapter 8 tells us that it's to intercede for us in our times of struggle, in the midst of our present sufferings and hardship. The Holy Spirit communicates to our Heavenly Father on our behalf. He interprets even the deepest of groans and anguish that we may feel. He also gives us hope that this suffering is only for a little while. He, he reminds us to look forward to what's to come. But we will still suffer. And it's these times that we must endure with the help of God, trusting him and pressing in further to him. So this chapter 8 is just wonderful. It's an amazing chapter in the Bible because... It paints for us a picture of just how secure and sound our hope in Jesus really is, no matter what this life brings our way and no matter what it is we suffer or the suffering we see in others. Of course, the conclusion, as we finish these eight chapters, is this wonderful reminder that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God 
that is in Christ Jesus. If you get a chance, church, I want to encourage you, um, there's another little bit of homework, uh, to go and read Romans chapter 8 right through, but in particular, if you find it difficult, just focus from verses uh, 31 through to 39. If you're ever going through a hard time, if you're ever overwhelmed, if you ever think there's no way forward through this, just read those verses and be drawn up into this big picture of who God is and of what he's done and of where your suffering and your circumstances fit into this. And this wonderful truth that despite all these things, the overwhelming victory is ours through Jesus Christ who loved us. And Paul continues as he concludes, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. Church, I want us to stand as we prepare to move into a time of communion. So please, if you're able to stand, stretch your legs. It's been a long message. And we're going to pray as we come into this time. And uh, our associate pastor, Evan, is going to come and lead us in communion this morning. Our Father God, so many words to summarise so many deep, profound truths of your grace and your love for all people of how you work, not as a God that just clicks his fingers and, or creates us to click our fingers to get things done and to make things happen, but a God who through history and through people and through time works to bring about his plans for all people. And so, Father, despite all the things that threaten that in our lives, that threaten that good news about Jesus and what you've done in and through him and what you continue to do and what you will continue to do, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would remind us in our heart of hearts of just how much God's love is for each one of us. Father, help us when we think of others in our families, in our networks of friends, in our neighbourhoods, loved ones that we know have perhaps heard this message but have turned their back on it or it hasn't sunk in. Others who have heard it and have gotten angry about it. And God, that's not what, what I'm in charge of my life. Father, there is much heartache when we see people, especially close to us, make those decisions assertively or passively. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would so continue to bear fruit through the seeds, no matter how small they are, that have been sown of this great news in each one of their lives and give us courage to continue loving them, not judging them, to continue allowing you to transform our lives so that one day they may come to see the great love that you have for them. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.